Almost everything the government buys in the future could look like cybersecurity with some other product attached. If new proposed rules from the Federal Acquisition Regulation Council take effect early next year, that's more a matter of when than if, anyhow. Attorney Townsend Bourne, a partner at Shepard Mullen, has read the proposed rules, and she joins me now with some expert analysis. Ms. Bourne, good to have you with us. Thanks so much. It's great to be here. Now, these are comprehensive rules. I mean, they really originated in Homeland Security, fair to say, but they are put forth because that's the official channel. Is the uh, FAR Council? That's right. These two proposed rules actually stem from an executive order that we got in May of 2021 from the Biden administration. So they're they're over two years in the works, but we've been expecting them now for, for a while and they've got a lot in them. Yeah. And there's a couple of different parts to them. And let's start with the threat incident and reporting information sharing part of that. What would that entail and on whom would it be a requirement? So this proposed rule is meant to target procurements that relate to information and communications technology, even though the proposed rule contemplates that the new FAR provisions are going to be in all solicitations and contracts. It's really targeting that ICT product and service procurement. So there is a little bit of a narrowing here, although the the new clauses we're going to start seeing in all solicitations and contracts once the rules go final. The main part of this really is that incident reporting and cyber threat sharing. The incident reporting requirement in the proposed rule is an eight-hour reporting requirement. So within eight hours of discovery of a security incident, the FAR Council would like contractors to report and then provide updates every 72 hours. And this would be if the contractor itself is experiencing the breach. That's correct. The, The proposed rule provides a definition of security incident so that will be the the parameters that will be used to determine whether or not that incident reporting requirement kicks in. And there's a little subtlety here I wanted to ask you about. One is sometimes the government buys ICT products. It buys communications and technology directly. But often the ICT, the information and communications technology, is integral to the delivery of some other product, say a VA buying this electronic record system. Well, you're buying a database and you're buying some software applications, a lot of them, but none of it works without the ICT underlying it. So how extensively will this go across the board here? It's a great question. I think that's something that's going to need to be ironed out during the public comment period. The background information within the proposed rule has some broad language that this would apply to any contracts where ICT is used in performance of the contract, in addition to where ICT products are being sold to the government. There is a little bit of a qualifier in the security incident reporting provision, which talks about ICT products and services that are provided to the government. So there's a bit of an ambiguity there that I think is going to need to be worked out because that word used obviously is quite broad. Sure. And there are also definitions you're reporting in here for Internet of Things devices and operational technology OT, which crosses over. There's a merger at some edge anyway of IOT and operational technology and then telecom equipment telecom services and security incident, everybody's got to relearn what these are. 
That's exactly right. This is the first time we're seeing a definition for Internet Internet of Things devices in the FAR. We've had some guidance out of NIST on treatment and cybersecurity for Internet of Things, but we haven't seen it embedded into a FAR clause yet. So this will be new. Then the incident reporting regime, is that the main part of what these rules are all about? So you would think so. It is the main impetus for this rule, I believe. There are also a lot of sections that talk about supporting incident response, which will require contractors to do a lot on the front end, both to preserve data before and after a security incident. But there's also requirements now for an SBOM, which is a software bill of materials that contractors will be required to maintain for all software used in performance of the contract, at least the way the proposed rule is written right now. There are also um, requirements to allow more access by certain agencies like CISA and the FBI to contractor systems after an incident and even before an incident when cyber threat indicators are shared. We're speaking with Townsend Bourne. She's a partner at the law firm Shepard Mullen. And so this really gets to beyond the arm's length relationship that government has with contractors. It sounds like there is a mechanism by which they can check to see if a contractor has what the government considers acceptable protections place. Is that fair to say? I think that's right. We're seeing some of the government access rights really spelled out in this proposed rule. I think contractors have gotten used to the idea that the government can come in and perform audits as a general matter. But here we're actually seeing those audit rights and investigation rights spelled out pretty clearly. What has been reaction that you've had from clients so far? I mean, what are people, this has been out less than a couple weeks, they've got until December, I think, to comment, industry or anyone that wants to comment, but what's the initial reaction look like to you? I think people are still trying to wrap their arms around this one. Both of the proposed rules are over 100 pages, so I'm not sure how many people are brave enough to, to dive into the whole thing, so we're trying to distill and make sure we understand the proposed applicability to help our clients understand the proposed rules and understand what comments they might want to put in. And what about CMMC? This is not related to CMMC, but it has a kind of animating idea behind it similar to CMMC, and that is you have to have a certain amount of chops in being able to detect things and report things that not all companies, frankly, have until the ransomware shuts down their data. What's the government fundamentally trying to get at here, do you think? Yeah, that's exactly right. So it's, it'll be interesting to help clients implement this in, in conjunction with CMMC, which obviously we've been working on for a while now. CMMC revolves around types of information. So the cybersecurity required of contractors really depends on the type of government information they're going to have in their systems. This new proposed rule focuses more, like we've been saying, on information and communications technology. So it's not focused on the information per se, it's focused on the technology. So that's going to be a bit of a challenge, I think, when contractors are implementing compliance plans. It's a little bit of a mental shift from what we've been doing with CMMC. There's also another detail I wanted to ask you about, something that has been in discussion in the government at least 30 years, literally, and that is IP version 6 implementation contractors are going to be required to complete Internet Protocol version 6 implementation activities, whatever that means. They reference a 2020 memo, but I can find a a 1990 memo referring to IP version 6. Right, right. Yeah, I think this is something the government's been trying to get out for a while. So we've seen contracts in the past that incorporate agency policy and guidance 
trying to implement IP version six. So this is something that I think we knew was coming. I wasn't necessarily expecting to see it in this proposed rule, but it's it's not totally surprising. All right. And then there's going to be some new contract clauses to FAR Part 39 you have written out here. And so there's a lot of mechanism and a lot of, I guess, bureaucracy connected with this in terms of the, what the FAR is adding. That's right. A significant add is going to be a new representation provision. So this has been a way the government has tried to ensure compliance by making contractors check the box and represent and certify that they're doing certain things. This new proposed rule has a representation provision that will require offerors at the time they're putting in their proposals to represent that they've submitted current, accurate, and complete security incident reports under all of their existing government contracts, which is is a pretty broad, it's a new one for us, and also a representation regarding flowing down these provisions to their subcontractors. Right. So there is a lot of, I guess, potential here for False Claims Act activity somewhere down the line. That's exactly right. And interestingly, the the background in the proposed rules does specifically say that these requirements are going to be material to government payments, which is basically taking a page out of the False Claims Act. Sure. And then do these basically apply then to people that are not dealing with classified systems because people dealing in the classified world probably already have a lot of this in place? I think that's right. It's more targeted to the unclassified world and it will apply to commercial product and services procurements as well. So they're they're trying to catch some of the contractors that I think are not, you know, in the traditional space for government contracting and they're going to have to understand and implement some of these new requirements. Boy, this is going to really drive people to other transaction authority buys if they can get away with it. And just a final question, you've made a distinction here also that there are rules for whether the contractor is using cloud computing and whether it's using its own data centers. That's right. So the second proposed rule really gets at contractors that are operating what we now have a definition for, which is federal information systems. And it actually builds in for contractors that are operating cloud systems for the government, a requirement that they be FedRAMP authorized. FedRAMP is the federal government's program for security for cloud service providers. So that's now going to be built into the FAR. So there's some old cleaning up they're kind of doing here as well as breaking new ground. I think that's right. FedRAMP's been a program since 2011. It was just codified um, via statute at the end of last year. So I think, yes, it's been 10 years in the making, but now it's, it's finally becoming part of the regulations. All right. Townsend Bourne is a partner at the law firm Shepard Mullen. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you so much. It was great to be here. And we'll post this interview along with a link to her blog at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Kolmstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. 
Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Now. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week 
and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply. That's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it? And building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency. And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm gonna go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program, she even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision and it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people and even your title, chief people officer. What does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? 
Isn't that a great title? I just love the title Chief People Officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins. 
who are almost 24 years old. So, And I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.